So we're in this series called uh, Emmanuel, God with us, and we're looking at one of the Christmas accounts. So there's these four documents in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and two of them, Matthew and Luke, tell us about the birth of Jesus. And so we're taking one of those, the, the Matthew account, it's the first two chapters, and for five weeks we're looking at the story of the first Christmas. And I hope what we're discovering is that the, uh, the passage that we look at almost every week seems super, super familiar. These are like proper carol service type of readings. And I suppose the danger is that when we, we read passages like this, it can just seem kind of quaint, kind of like, you know, oh, I've heard that before. I hear that every Christmas. And the danger is that we can think it's sort of a quaint tale from yesteryear that's sort of there to make us feel sentimental and just a little bit better about life in the midst of everything else that's going on, when actually these stories, these passages we're looking at are describing something that isn't an escape from the nitty-gritty realities of life. It's actually taking us right into the nitty-gritty realities of life. Or it's showing us how Jesus, God's Son, stepped right into our world for people like us. And so hopefully, week after week, what we're discovering is that the Christmas story is not just familiar old material, but it's actually heart-stirring material. It's actually uh, material that can change our lives because it speaks into the reality of our lives. That's my hope with this passage, but when we read it, I suspect you'll think, now, if ever there was a Christmas passage that seems separate from us, it's this one. We're at Matthew chapter 2. It's on page uh, 807. doesn't have a page number, confusingly, but 807, Matthew chapter 2. And I'm just going to read it to you. I'm sure you'll recognize it, even if the only time you've ever been to church was for a carol service. You probably got some of this. And I'll read it straight to you, and then we'll talk about it for the time that we have. Matthew chapter 2, you'll see the big number 2 there in the middle of the page, and it says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country 
by another way. Familiar? It's quite a a straightforward story, isn't it? We've got these uh, people from the east, these wise men. We often think of them or sing of them as kings, although it doesn't call them kings here. But in the Old Testament, it talks about kings bringing gifts. And so we, we sort of think wise men, kings, these, these significant people traveling in from the east. We don't know whether they were from Arabia, which is a, po- a possibility because that's a, a kind of a known location for those gifts. Or maybe from Persia, from Iran. In fact, uh, later on, the history books tell us that when the Iranians uh, attacked Israel, Years and years later, uh, centuries later, they came to the church of the nativity in Bethlehem and they left it alone because they saw the mosaic above the door had the wise men dressed in Persian clothes. And so they didn't destroy the church and so maybe that's an indication that they were Persians. So the wise men come to Jerusalem and they come to the palace and they're asking, where's this king? Now it says that the king was bothered and the reason for that. Uh, It's probably fairly obvious, isn't it? If you're the king and someone's asking, where's the new king? You tend to be a little bit concerned. Herod was concerned plus. King Herod, we know, was uh, Herod the Great. He was a great builder. He built temples. He built stadiums. He he built all sorts of of different uh, kind of impressive buildings. He, He just wanted to have this great legacy. But he was also utterly paranoid. And so when these people came, and it wouldn't have been just a a couple of guys on a couple of camels. We always think three, don't we, because of three gifts, but we don't know. It wouldn't have been just three anyway. Even if it was only three wise men, there would have been all the servants and all the kind of entourage. Contrary to Christmas cards, you don't have three very wealthy men wandering through the Middle East on camels you know, in fine regalia, sort of inviting bandits to hold them up. There would have been a a huge entourage of people. And so when they arrived in Jerusalem, they caused a stir. They're talking about a king. There's a king. What king? What, a new king? That would be nice. And all the, the rumors were spreading around and people were talking about it. And so they came to Herod, and Herod was perplexed and concerned, and he called his advisors, and the advisors checked the, uh, the computer records or the scrolls as they had back then. And they found in the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, the verse that's quoted in the passage. So they say the king is going to be born in Bethlehem. Straightforward story, right, so far? So the king, Herod, says, okay, wise men, over here, let me have a little word. So he has a little word with them, and he says, okay, you go find him, and when you find him, you come and tell me, so that I can come and worship him too. And so off they go, and they find Jesus And they bring their gifts and they worship and and the whole story kind of ends except they have a dream and they go back a different way instead of returning to the palace. Familiar story. But I suppose I'm probably right in thinking that there must be at least one or two people who are sat here saying, yeah, that's a familiar story. But it's not just familiar, it it seems far-fetched. It seems fanciful. It, It seems almost like a fairy tale. I mean, come on, wise men from the East. This is so far removed from reality. This has got to be made up. This idea that they saw something in the sky and it directed them there. Come on, surely that's just creative writing from the ancient world, isn't it? We've got to think about that. 
We've got to wrestle with whether or not this is actual history. And the reason for that is because the Bible is presenting it as if it is actual history. And so if the Bible is presenting it as history and we say it's not history, then we've suddenly put ourselves in a position where can we trust the Bible? That's a huge question. So let's think about it for a moment. Is it realistic for these people to come from the east based on something they saw in the sky? Well, first of all, this idea that there would be a king born in Judah or Judea, that wasn't kind of coming out of nowhere. That was actually a fairly common thought in those days. Right the way across the Mediterranean world, right the way across the Middle East, people had this kind of expectation that a king was going to come from that little corner of the Roman Empire. Fast forward a few years, Vespasian, you may have heard his name in history, Vespasian was a general of the Roman army. When he fought and won in Judea, he returned to Rome and presented himself as the ruler who is to rise out of Judea. And so obviously it was common expectation. It was something that people were thinking about. What about the stars? Well, uh, around that time, we know when King Herod the Great died, so we know roughly when we're talking about historically, it's between 6 and 4 BC that this story would have happened. Around that time, and this is something that we know now that we wouldn't have known even 50 years ago because now they can, they can work out what was doing what in the sky on what date from what perspective. And so you go back just a couple of years before the death of Herod the Great and Saturn and Jupiter converged in the sky. That would have got people's attention. They were, they were superstitious. They were uh, stargazing. They were really aware. And so the two planets coming together would have got people's attention. What's more, Mars was also converging, but we're not sure if the human eye could have seen that. So ignore that bit. But these planets were coming together. And within months of that, there was a comet I think it's called Williams Comet number 52. I don't know what Williams did to get so many of them, but Williams Comet number 52 shot across the sky. Now, for these people, in that part of the world, that part of history, something that major happening in the sky would have stirred them. It would have moved them. It would have made them think something serious is happening. Now, we think, well, hang on a minute. I don't know what's going on in the sky. How come they knew what was going on in the sky? Well, that's an easy one, isn't it? We live with electricity and televisions and computer screens, and, uh, and we don't tend to notice the stars. Plus, we have this thing called clouds in this country that they don't have so much of over there. So for us, the sky is just, it's just a thing, right? But for them, it was one of the major things they would look at. They had lamps, and they had fires, and they had sky. That was the three options at night. And so for normal people, the sky would have been as familiar as our own neighborhood is for us. And for people that studied the sky, they wouldn't have missed major events happening in the heavens. And so you put that together, and you say, well, okay, so here are some people who are expecting the arrival of a king in Judea, and all these things are happening in the skies above them. It's not that far-fetched, after all. It actually fits historically that they could well have done this. It's not fairy tale. This is fact that we're dealing with. 
And so for them to arrive in Jerusalem, the obvious place to go makes sense. To come to Herod and ask the king, where's the new king? It makes sense. For Herod to be paranoid, it makes total sense. And I'll tell you more about him another week. But Herod was uber, ultra paranoid. And then the experts checked the books and they saw where the baby was to be born. So is this a far-fetched fanciful fairy tale? I don't think so. All the evidence from history suggests that this could well be fact. You say, okay, fair enough, but there's still something else that's wrong with this story. And maybe this is not so much of an objection that people would have coming in from the outside. This is an objection that we have here on the inside, if you like. As as churchgoers who know our Christmas story, there is clearly a problem here. Because when the wise men arrived to worship the baby Jesus... It says, does it not, that they came to a house. Where are we? Verse 11. Going into the house. Now that's a problem because everybody knows that Jesus was born in a stable. Right? He's born in a stable. What's he doing in a house? Well, not so fast. We need to just check our own traditions for a moment here. How do we know that Jesus was born in a stable? Actually, we don't. Like I said, there's two accounts of the birth of Jesus. There's Matthew's account and Luke's account. And Luke's account tells us that this angel came to some shepherds nearby and made this great big announcement to them that today in the city of David, a savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Manger, there you go, stable. Well, maybe but probably not. You see, the the actual Christmas story, to me, is more thrilling than the Christmas card version of it. I hope I don't spoil your Christmas too much by telling you that, but but I want to tell you what it was probably really like and see that actually the text just enlightens that. It just shines on that. It, It makes it richer for me than the beautiful, glittery images we get on Christmas cards. So, If there's a manger, there must be a stable, not necessarily. Luke tells us that when Mary and Joseph came to Bethlehem, Jesus was born and laid in a manger because there was no room in the inn. Two things we've got to be aware of. Number one, mangers did not just occur in stables or cattle sheds. Secondly, inns were not just travel lodges. Okay, so a travel lodge, you know what I mean by that, a motel, there's actually a word for that, a place where you pay to stay. It's the word that's used in the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember that story? The guy fell among thieves and was left for dead, and the Samaritan took him and brought him to an inn and left him with some money, and he said, if he costs any more, I'll pay when I return. That was a motel. That was a pay-to-stay kind of a location. But that's not the word that's used in the Christmas story. The word that's used in the Christmas story is the same word that's used later on in Luke's gospel when Jesus sends his disciples and says to them, go and prepare the room, the guest room, the upper room, the room where we're going to have the last supper. That's the word that's used in the Christmas story. So as much as we can imagine it, Bethlehem, just a, a little town, 
with poor people, peasants living there. Their homes would be so humble, just a a single room home. And then for some, there would be an extra room added, either above or behind uh, the guest room. And so when Jesus' parents arrived in Bethlehem, the guest room was taken. After all, there's a census going on, and so uh, loads of people are converging on Bethlehem. The guest room was taken. So where would they have been looked after? By family or friends? They would have been brought into the house. Now, now we've got a problem, because what's a manger doing in the house? Actually, that's not so far-fetched. In this little house, if you imagine yourself just a poor peasant family in Bethlehem, you don't own much, you haven't got much, maybe a couple of goats and a sheep, where do you put them at night? Do you entrust them to a rickety old cattle shed on the outskirts of town before padlocks? I don't think so. You're not going to risk losing something so incredibly valuable. What you do is almost certainly bring them into the house. In fact, houses that they've dug up in that part of the world from that part of history have a a main room, and and that's the room where you live, and you you sit, and you chat, and you eat, and you sleep, the main single room. And at the bottom, a couple of steps down, it's where the animals would be kept at night. During the day, let's have them outside. But at night, we're not going to sleep soundly unless we know that whatever, Daisy and Mary or whatever you want to call your goats and your sheep, unless they're in and they're safe, you're not going to sleep. So you bring them in and you bolt the door and they calm down because there's food to be eaten from the feeding trough or the manger that's there. You sleep soundly and bonus, you sleep warm because they add temperature to the room. Sounds terrible to us, doesn't it? But actually it made a lot of sense for them. That makes sense that Jesus was born in a living room rather than in a stable. Because if you know anything about the Middle East, there is no chance that they're going to allow a poor little teenage girl who's heavily pregnant to give birth in a cattle shed. You might say all sorts of things about people in the Middle East, but being bad at hospitality is not one of them. They would have gathered around her and brought her in and cared for her. And Jesus would have been born in there and on the outside probably would have been the sheep and the goats and the men pacing up and down and slapping each other on the back and all the things that men do supposedly to help the process. And inside, Mary's doing all the real work and then Jesus was born and wrapped. And where should we put him? Let's put him here in the manger. And so the shepherds got the message, look for a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. They would have gone, right, we can find that one because they'd know where to look, and they found him, and they worshipped him. So the wise men coming to the house is not a mistake. And equally, it doesn't mean that they had to wait almost two years to show up, which is the kind of explanation I always got growing up. The reason they come to a house is because Jesus is now a boy, not a baby. And after all, King Herod later on, we're going to find, went after the under twos. I'm not convinced that he did that because he knew this child could be almost two years old. If that was the case, he would have done under sixes. He was indiscriminate. We'll see that another week. Under twos doesn't mean that Jesus was 18 months old, which means that we don't have to say every time we look at a Christmas card, oh no, they've got the wise men and the shepherds together, as if somehow that's wrong, because actually it might not be too far from the truth. 
Okay, so, so all of those pieces, hopefully we can kind of get a couple of objections out of the way and we can look at the passage and say, that's an interesting story. And hopefully, this is what I hope, as we look at this story, we discover that actually this isn't just something that feels fanciful like a fairy tale from the ancient world. Actually, this is a passage that speaks to us. Let me tell you what I mean. Everything that we've seen in chapter one, we see it again here. First of all, that we're dealing with history. This is a historical account. There's history to support it in the heavens, in the skies. There's history to support it in terms of King Herod and his personality issues. There's, issue, there's history to support this in terms of the wise men. It could be, and some speculate, that, that Daniel, the prophet, when he was in Iran, in Babylon, then the Persian kingdom, 600 years before Christ, he talked a lot about the coming Messiah and he left behind him a school of people who were focused on the stars and on the coming of the Messiah. There's all sorts of possible and supporting evidence to say this is history. We've seen that in chapter one, the genealogy and the details that just make you think, you know what, this isn't just made up. There's something that has the ring of truth about this. But more than that, we saw in chapter one that this is the working out of God's great plan. We see that here too. Just like in chapter one, we've got this genealogy that goes back and has these 42 touchdown points in history. Here, we've got this a sense that this wasn't just a coincidence, you don't accidentally get an entourage from the east walking into Bethlehem, carrying gifts for a newborn king. Oh, what a coincidence. No, this is God's great plan being worked out. A plan that has stretched over centuries and a plan that reaches out globally. In the genealogy in chapter 1, there are people listed who are not Jewish. We call them Gentiles, non-Jews. That should give us a little glimmer of hope because I, I presume that we're not Jewish, we're Gentile. And now we've got it explicitly on the page. Here are a group of people who God has brought to this place who are clearly not Jewish. Here is God's global plan being worked out over the centuries and over the months that it took to get them there. That's good for us. By the way, it's easy for us to look at them and say, well, yeah, but they're super rich. You know, they're like the elite, not from a Jewish perspective. If we were a group of Jews reading this passage, we'd say, oh, one minute it's shepherds, they're nobodies. And next minute it's Gentiles, they're nobodies. Why would God want such nobodies to be involved in the birth of the Messiah? You see, it's God's goodness to work out his great plan, including nobodies like us, which brings us to the third point that we've seen for the last two weeks, and we see it again here, that, that just as this is shaped by God's great global plan, it's also colored in by God's glorious grace. These are undeserving people. These are undeserving people who are getting to witness the birth of the Son of God right there to hear the cry, to see him, uh, to see him right there in, in all six, seven, eight pounds of flesh, however big he was. They just got to see the Messiah for themselves. What a gracious gift from God. And so what is it about this story here that speaks of God's grace? We've got the undeserving shepherds and we've got the undeserving wise men. 
We've got this peasant home. And this young couple, not even married yet. I mean, talk about all the stigmas and all the negatives. Everything is in that room. And so as we look at the Christmas card, what we're looking at is an image that in in glittery, beautiful, clean, no crying baby kind of form is representing to us a reality that is incredibly poignant. That God would choose to enter this world, not in a palace and not in a bizarre stable, but in the living room of nobodies. Mr. and Mrs. Nobody looking after a young man and his fiancée, nobody. Isn't that beautiful? God's son came to people like us. And as we think about that image with the shepherds and the wise men and the animals and, and Mary and Joseph and whoever their hosts were, we're thinking about that. We're seeing all the extremes. And what it's saying to us, what it's speaking to us, is that we can be included too. If you're Jewish, if you're Gentile, you're included. Jesus came for you. If you're super rich, like the ultimate elite rich, or if you're the poorest peasant around, Jesus came for you. If you're highly educated and you can follow star directions. By the way, I don't quite know how the star got them to the house. I'm not saying it makes total sense. Somehow it worked. But if you're that intelligent, or if you're so simple that all you can do is milk your goat, Jesus came for you. If you're rich, if you're poor, if you're educated, if you're uneducated, if you're young, if you're old, if you're male, if you're female, whoever you are, the Christmas story is screaming at us, Jesus came for you. And then there's the gifts. So the wise men arrive and they get out their treasures and open up what they've brought and they've brought these three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's kind of obvious, I suppose, what gold is for. Where's the new, child, the new king that is born? Well, when there's a king, you give them wealth, and so gold makes sense, right? Gold for a king. What about frankincense? Frankincense was incredibly valuable, but it's something, a, a, a substance that's used in priestly worship. It's burned and the the smell, the aroma rises up. And so it seems to me it's not too far-fetched to think that maybe what they're bringing here represents the fullness of what the Old Testament was anticipating in this person, baby Jesus, who was to be born or who was born and and visible to them. They were seeing here and, and representing to him a gift that he was the anointed king. More than that, he was the anointed priest. See, the Old Testament, when it talks about the Messiah, Messiah means anointed, like set apart and chosen for a purpose, for a special task. And Jesus was promised as the uh, Messiah, the Christ, the anointed, the Christed one, or the Messiahed one. And he would be the king who would bring peace on earth. He would be the priest who would represent humanity to God. And you can't help but think, okay, well, there's a third one, isn't there? He's the king, he's the priest, he's the prophet. How does myrrh tie into being a prophet? You see, myrrh is a substance, a sort of a sticky resin with a very distinct smell that they they used across the world at that time for burial rites. 
When a, a body, when somebody had died and the body was being wrapped and prepared for, for the, the tomb, it would be wrapped with myrrh if they could afford it because it would cover the smell of death. And so to bring a gift of myrrh seems really weird. Where, where's the honor in that? I mean, it's valuable, but apart from that, maybe whether they knew it or not, what they were doing in that moment was representing to Jesus who he was anointed to be. Not just the one to rule from heaven and bring peace on earth. Not just the one to represent humanity to heaven on our behalf. But the one who would speak to us from God. The anointed prophet. The Old Testament anticipates all three. A king in the line of Judah and the line of David. A priest as described in 1 Samuel. And a prophet as described in Deuteronomy. Someone who would speak for God. Someone who would reveal God. Someone who would show us what God is like. Which is why as we look at this passage, we can't help but think not just of Christmas, but of Easter. Not just of the the baby born and lying in a manger, but the grown man hanging naked and humiliated on that cross. Because that's where we get to see what God is like in pure form. A God who would choose to be king by being crowned with thorns and exalted on a throne that nobody else would choose. A God who would be priest for humanity to his Father in heaven by offering the ultimate sacrifice of himself. The Son of God who came as the prophet to show us what God is like. By dying on the cross, he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. If you want to know what the Father is like, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus represents the Father to us. And as we see Jesus hanging on the cross 30 odd years later, what we see is what God is like. Self-giving, sacrificial, humble, We sang about a humble king, the God of the humble, the God who is humble. That's not something you'll get in any other religion. And so that's why I think this passage tells us three times what its point is. Just like in the passage before, we were told three times that you are to name him Jesus. He shall be called Emmanuel, and so Joseph named him Jesus. There was the naming three times in this passage We've got repeated three times the same thing. Verse 2, we have come to worship him. Verse 8, Herod says, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now Herod didn't mean that, but actually it's true. The Bible tells us that irrespective of whether we worship Jesus now or not, in the end every knee will bow including Herod's, even those who hate him and mean him harm, every knee will bow to Jesus because he will rule over all. But the point of this passage isn't a threat to us. It's an invitation, isn't it? That we, like the wise men from the east, can come to worship him. And so it restates it again in verse 11. They fell down and they worshiped him. You see, that's what Jesus 
should stir within us. That's what the Christmas card image should do in our hearts. Not there's three wise men. We don't know if there was three. Oh, there's a stable. There shouldn't be a stable. It's not there. The image that we think of and that we see is not there to antagonize us. It's there to remind us of something. And when you see that image this Christmas, when you see the stable and the star and the wise men and the shepherds and the sheep and the donkey and Joseph and Mary and Jesus, when you see that, remember that Jesus came to people like us, right into the very heart of our lives, right into the living room of a peasant family. He came for people like us, whether we're Jewish or Gentile, whether we're rich or poor, educated or uneducated, somebody or nobody. He came for us. And when we see who he is, and when we recognize what he came to do, and when our minds and our hearts are drawn forward from the the, the crib to the cross, surely the only appropriate response is to fall down and worship him to honor him and to thank him for all that he's done for us. And that's what we're here to do today. I'm going to pray and give thanks and then we're going to have communion. I'll explain it after the prayer, but let's just pray and in our own hearts respond to the wonder of the message of Christmas. Father, we want to thank you that in that little house, in that little town, in that little province of the Roman Empire, your son came into our world in absolute weakness. And yet in that little living room, there's room for us. Thank you, Lord, that you want us to be included. You want us to be uh, gathered around looking at Jesus, worshiping him because he's worthy of our praise. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for coming for us. Thank you for coming into our world. More than that, thank you for coming right into our lives. Thank you for inviting us to recognize that you're the king. One day crowned with glory and honor, but firstly, you were crowned with that crown of thorns. Thank you for inviting us to allow you to be our priest, representing us to God, not with incense, but with the aroma of your own life offered on our behalf. Thank you for inviting us to see you as the prophet, the one who would reveal God to us. And Lord Jesus, we want to tell you that what we see in you astonishes us, that that is what our God is like. And so we worship in all of our weakness, in all of our uh, lack of ability to express it, Lord, we worship you. We thank you for that manger. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that the tomb is empty and we thank you that today you reach out to embrace us. And so we pray that even as we take communion together now, this simple act would stir within us a response of genuine worship not just for a moment, but for the hours and the days ahead. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we pray to your Father and our Father in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.